All I can say is I love the time of communion, for it should be a time of celebration. I do see sometimes people come, it's almost kind of morbid. They're down and depressed. And I don't understand that because we celebrate that the Lord Jesus paid the complete price for our sin, that which we were enslaved to from birth. I've been going through different texts. It's kind of started my study that I've been doing in the book of Mark. And in the section where we're dealing with the Last Supper, I know we pull communion from that, but at the same time, too, it it's like you're missing the whole picture. It's like you're getting this little snap, the little snippet or a snapshot of something, but it's like the whole event that you read, say in Luke 22 or in Mark, it's almost like you've just kind of glossed over it and you just focus on what Jesus did with the elements. Well, what were the elements? Why? What's going on? What's happening? There's so much imagery that Jesus redefined that we miss. We miss it for the most part because we have not carried the Passover meal in our culture and our families over centuries and generations. We don't see it. We don't know it. At the time of Jesus' meal with his disciples, we're talking about a meal that had occurred for 1,500 years. It is literally the oldest, longest celebrated religious meal ever. You think about Jesus' time, that's 1,500 years. We've had 2,000, that's 3,500 years old now. The Passover meal today has many more elements than it did in Jesus' time, but still presented the same point of remembrance and praise to God. The Passover meal is known as the Seder. S-E-D-E-R. So turn in Luke 22, and we'll kind of work in there and probably keep a thumb in Exodus. We will hit Deuteronomy 26, just in your head knowledge. I did some research, too, with that, and I was very amazed to see what the culture was today as far as the Seder. This is a guide that I found on the Internet for the Seder. It's kind of a simple, broken-down version it's well written, it's very helpful, and this one was a little bit more intense in the fact, too, that you have the Hebrew on the left and the translation on the right. And it's very thick, very detailed. It goes through a lot more of the cultural understanding of what the Seder is today. But again, we're only going to be focusing on what we see in Luke 22. So, Luke 22, verse 7 through 13. We'll get a picture started here. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. They said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he entered. And tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. Consider what we're looking at in time. 
In 12 or so hours, Jesus will be hanging on the cross. Jesus does not have much time left. He has been telling his followers that he had to go to Jerusalem and he will be killed, but still they could not understand the full event nor believe that it would even occur. We remember Peter pulling Jesus aside to reprimand him for such talk and Jesus had to rebuke Peter as he was being used by Satan. The preparation was centered around the lamb. In the tradition, the lamb would have been brought into the home days before, kind of become like a family pet, close. A relationship is kind of built. Then, on the appointed day that we were seeing that's recorded here, the lamb would then be taken to the temple and would be sacrificed. In the sacrificial process, the priest would then slit the throat of the lamb and a bowl would be present to catch the blood of the lamb. And then the lamb would be butchered and prepared and what would be taken home would be the meat and the blood. We don't know all the details, but Jesus had already made the arrangements of the place of the meal. I mean, it does seem kind of strange, doesn't it? So all of a sudden it's like, follow this guy, and it's all set. And you're going, sounds like a mystery movie somewhere. But it was an interesting thing. And you think about the queuing key issues here. Think about what time we're talking about. We're talking about the Passover. We're talking about being in Jerusalem. You're talking about thousands upon thousands of pilgrims that have come from all over to be there that time period. Now, Jerusalem's not this massive city with tons of space, so you're going to be imaging the fact that you're going to have a tremendous amount of people in the city streets all over the place. It's going to be a tight place to maneuver. But you've got one trigger point that you and I probably go, you're going to pick up one guy in a crowd that's carrying a water pot? Really? Okay, good luck. You know, it's like, pick the, pick the one guy that's got blonde hair out of the, the large group of a thousand. Uh, one. Could you get a little bit more detailed? Well, it is detailed. Cue for where to have the Passover meal was set by a strange site, at least for the time. Not something that we understand. It is stated in Scripture that Jesus said to go find the man carrying the water pot. And you and I would go, yeah, okay, a guy carrying a water pot. No. In that culture, the women carried the water pots. So all of a sudden, you do have something that pops up unique out of the whole crowd. And Jesus says, when you see him, follow him into the house that he enters, and then make this statement to the master or owner of the house. Where is it set up? It's set upstairs. Now you're kind of going, is this normal? Yeah, you think about it again, back up. Thousands of people in Jerusalem don't live there. They've come into town to celebrate the Passover. Where? There's not meeting halls. There's not conference centers. It's not hotels. So where do they do this? A lot of families, a lot of homes had multiple rooms that were already prepared for people to have the Passover meal that were not part of the city. And this is one of those situations. It was upstairs. It was prepared. And I love the detail that Luke gives. And it was furnished. Had everything they needed. 
It wasn't like this blank room and go, you got to bring everything. Good luck. No, if you're coming in from out of town, you've got nothing. So they were to follow the man carrying the water pot until they entered the house. They were then to make the inquiry. At this time, there were so many people that these men are getting away to a private place upstairs. Luke twenty-two fourteen, And when the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. Here we go again. Not what we expect in our day, today. We all sit at tables with chairs. Not in the Eastern culture. Take a look at Leonardo da Vinci's picture. Well, let's not, okay? What's that? It's a nice rectangular table, lifted up, everybody's sitting, Jesus in the middle, and everybody's cranked around to take a look. A lot of nice furnishings, a lot of interesting art. It's beautiful art. It's about as historically wrong as you can get. So, for the time being, throw that one completely out of your memory. You can't use it, you don't want it, get rid of it, jettison out. So where they are right now, and you notice they say that they are in a reclined position. And you and I are going, I don't get that. You know, you're always telling your children, sit up, you know, at the table, right? Well, this is not one of those sit-up times. They ate at a table, either full circle or semicircle. That's an ability to be able to see others in the meal. Have you ever been at a long rectangular table? And you're trying to crane your neck around to get part of the conversation of someone down at the other end of the table? Now, if you had a nice round circular table, you got everybody. I mean, it'd be like having our prayer groups this morning in straight lines. You see what that would be like? Someone at the other end, you're going, who's talking? But again, they're semicircle or they're a full circle. And they're leaning into one another. They're laying down. It's a short table. So, again... Use the text of scripture to make sure that you're holding the historical context correct. So now we start the Seder. With some background of the Passover meal or the Seder is marked by four movements, and each one of those movements are marked by four cups of wine. Before the first cup, there is a prayer offered, and it's a prayer blessing God. Now here we go again. Here's another twist in our thinking. Notice, in the Jewish mindset, when you go for a blessing, you're not asking the food would be a blessing to you. They're blessing God for his provision. I do always think, this might step on some of your toes, I apologize, but think about it deeper. I've been around a lot of people that pray, and they pray that the food would be a blessing to our body. Does that sound a little awkward? Because God created food for our body. If you want to get an accurate count on that, go back to Genesis and find out why he made food. It was for us. So it already is his provision for us, And the Jewish mindset is literally to say what? I am blessing God for his provision. He's blessed for what he's already provided. I think that might make a little bit different tinge on your thought 
as you as you eat a meal, you're not asking it for to suddenly become nourishing, but now you're going, God, you're to be blessed. I raise and glorify and honor you for your provision of food. So again, that's our Western mindset. So here's the blessing. May you be blessed, Lord our God, King of the world, who creates the fruit of the vine. Then we will take the first cup. Luke 22, verses 15 and 16. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, for I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. What? There's something different that Jesus said that was not said before in any Passover. I've never heard this before. Somehow this meal is having a new meaning. The men with Jesus have always seen the Passover remembrance of the past. But Jesus is now pointing forward to his death. The central message of Jesus' teaching has always been the kingdom of God, and something is going to occur that is bringing focus on the kingdom of God. There is a significance to Jesus' death to the kingdom of God. It is ushering in something new. At this point in the meal, they will take the karpas and dip it into the salty water. Karpas is a piece of parsley, celery, or lettuce. The significance of dipping it into the salty water and partaking has had many historic meanings. The best that we can take a look back historically, and probably the oldest meaning, really points us back, and you kind of understand the point and the issue of the Passover, it kind of fits a little bit. It goes back to the story of Jacob and his sons, focusing a little bit on Joseph. You remember his brothers kidnapped him because they had a built-in hatred for him. They kidnapped him. Their desire was to kill him. Get rid of him. Get rid of the kid. He was number 11 out of the 12. Well, something changed and worked out, and they saw these, this band coming down the road, and they were heading towards Egypt, and they thought, you know, well, let's get a little cash out of the deal, and so we sell our brother. And what ends up happening, long story short, Joseph ends up in Egypt as a slave. Well, how do they cover the story to Dad? So they take this multicolored coat that Dad had given to Joseph because of his extreme isolated love, his preferential treatment towards Joseph, which again embittered his brothers. And so they kill a lamb, dip the coat into the blood of the lamb, and then use that as say, well, a wild animal killed Joseph, there's really nothing we could do. Well, the concept there is blood if you taste it, or when you do, is salty. Not that blood is salt, but it has a salty reaction. So that's one of the oldest understandings of why we dip the karpas into the salty, and this water is seriously salty. Okay, it'll get you. But it's interesting, about this time now, the youngest child in the family in the Passover meal would start asking questions. And then obviously the youngest would would make sense. And it kind of starts the work. Here's some of the questions. 
What makes this night different from all other nights? And what do we eat? Why do we eat only unleavened bread tonight? Why do we eat bitter herbs? Why do we dip the vegetables tonight? And why do we all recline at the table tonight? All these kind of questions that the youngest is asking, and they're, they're inquisitive. Well, the head of the table, it's the open door. Let me answer those questions. It goes back to the story of the exodus of Egypt. What happened there? It's going to be found in your Bibles. Now, this is a little bit longer read. It's Exodus chapters 1 through 12. Obviously, we don't have the time to read that. But in a normal Passover meal, this would be reread, retold. So it's too long to read. So the shorter version would literally be in Deuteronomy 26, verses 5 through 9. That's a little bit quicker hit. But again, because of time... (laughs) We need a little bit more picture on this. So we remember that with Joseph in Egypt, God moved him to be a great man at a level just under Pharaoh. He had charge over the land through the interpretation of a dream that Joseph knew the answer. And part of it was the fact that there would be many years of great harvest, abundance of harvest, but yet followed by a series of years of great famine throughout the land. So again, famine hit. Jacob's family and sons, there's no food. But Egypt has food. Let's go to Egypt. Again, we remember the story. They've got no clue. They haven't seen Joseph since he was younger. They've got no clue that he is now the next to the top man. So you get 70 people, and as text of Scripture helps us to understand, they're really only there for a short time just to get the food and to kind of survive past the famine and then be gone. They'll be sojourners. They're there for a while and gone. Guess what? They don't leave. They grew into a very large group, and the Egyptians were deeply concerned of the power of these people. Then Pharaoh made a decree that all the male babies were to be drowned in the Nile. Now you understand what time picture we're looking at. We're at the time of Moses. We remember the event of Moses being found by Pharaoh's daughter as he was in the little basket floating down the Nile River. Kind of a hope to protect it. She raises him as an Egyptian. Later on, there was an issue where Moses killed someone. He fled for his life. And later on, God brings him back to stand before Pharaoh with this single command to say, let my people go. Well, Pharaoh's refusal starts a sequence of ten plagues, ten strikes against the Egyptians. The last or the tenth plague was the killing of the firstborn of all, both men and animals. This final strike by God was in the answer of the Egyptians' killing of the male child. This is an automatic response back. So we raised the second cup to celebrate God's work in Egypt. And at this time they would recite the great halal, or the praise, also known as the Egyptian Hallel. It's 
Really, again, it's another long section. Uh, It's Psalm 113 through Psalm 118. It's long, and again, too long for us to actually go through. But again, please read that. It's such a beautiful thing. It's a praise to God for what he did in Egypt. And it kind of sets you forth. A lot of times, it's also read in response during a Seder. They then offer a blessing to God. Again, it's, may you be blessed, Lord our God, King of the world, who creates the fruit of the vine. The next element is the unleavened bread. Now, Rabbi Gamaliel, you guys all know him, right? He's biblical, right? Who was one of his students that we know so much about? Paul, and at that time, Saul of Tarsus. Gamaliel was his rabbi, man who taught him, man who raised him up. But he was also another man that showed up in Scripture in a strong defense for truth. But he once stated, you can celebrate the Passover many different ways, but the Passover has to have at least three elements. Unleavened bread, bitter herbs, and Passover lamb. Unleavened bread is made with no yeast. Any of us who've ever baked bread and you forget the... Have you ever done a cake and you forgot the leavening? You know, like the baking powder and baking soda? You pull that baby out of the oven, it's flat. It's the pancake that you weren't looking for, right? It's going to be flat. The yeast was what gives bread the rise in fluffiness. Now we... When we do communion, or have done it in the past, you actually have matzah. That's machined unleavened bread that's pressed. It's a little bit tighter, and it's very crunchy. Pretty much the same. All the unleavened bread is flat. Unleavened bread marks the fact that after the last plague, they were to be ready to go at a moment's notice. Basically, you got your coat on, you're sleeping in your clothes. You're ready to go. The minute it's time to go, you go. And this is pointing back to, again, that time period that they're not going to have any time to wait around for bread to rise. It takes hours, if not overnight, for it to go through a full rise. So they've got to go. So while your finger is still in Luke, go to Exodus chapter 12. Second book of the Bible, right? Okay, just checking. Exodus 12, verse 39 And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened, because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. Now you get the idea that this move out of Egypt was an instantaneous knee-jerk reaction out. Not a lot of time to do anything. You're not packing anything. You're moving. So Jesus, now back to our, our event Jesus takes the unleavened bread and breaks it. Luke twenty-two nineteen, the first part says, And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them. You can picture this. You can see him breaking that little flat piece of bread and handing it to each one. Now again, at this point, these men have seen this through their whole life. This is how it occurs. Jesus gave a blessing. May you be blessed, Lord our God, King of the world, who brings bread from the earth. So he breaks it and gives to them. 
Luke continues in the second part of that verse. He says, now Jesus says, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. What is going on in the apostles' minds? They have no one in their life ever changed the symbolism that they knew to be only one way for generations. And now Jesus is using the bread to point again to his coming death. His broken body, beaten and crushed by torture. Jesus taught that he was the bread of life. And that through his death, there is life. The bread of the past symbolized the hurried exit from Egypt after centuries of oppression and slavery. Slaves of Egypt, but here Jesus shows us suffering and going to the cross will end the slavery of sin for those who believe. We don't have it recorded, but they would then take the bitter herb. This is the mayor. The whole point of taking the mayor was to cause the individual to cry and the nose to run. The taste of the suffering that they experienced in Egypt, today they use ground up horseradish. Now, if any of you are like me, I run because I've tasted horseradish and it does cause you just swell up. You just start crying and people go, what's wrong? Horseradish. My dad loved it. Okay, we won't go any further. Again, Rabbi Gamaliel has a point on this one. He says every generation of Israel should see themselves as the generation that came up out of Egypt. That's the remembrance. But see, Jesus is changing the remembrance from thinking of the past, that we have this remembrance that we should always pass to every generation for decades upon our own lives, that this is what Jesus has done for us. We remember what he did, yes, in the past and continues on. Exodus chapter 1 verse 11 gives us this picture of what this bitter herb, what the significance of it is. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. This is Egypt. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pethum and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter, or morar, with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. They made their lives bitter. That's why they take the bitter herbs, to remember the suffering. The bitter suffering of the Jews will soon be taken by Jesus. He is the true suffering servant. After the bitter herbs, and again, some more wine, because you've got to definitely wash that down, and get your tears <laughs> cleaned up. It's intense. They now move to the eating of the lamb. Again, this is a year old lamb without blemish. 
taken to the temple for slaughter. Again, the meat and the blood would go home. And you think before the tenth plague, going back to Egypt, the blood of the lamb was then brushed on the doorpost for the home. They would take a bunch, handful of branches from the hyssop bush that kind of formed a bit of a paintbrush, would dip that into the bowl of the blood and then mark it onto the doorposts. Why? When the death plague came that night, when the blood on the doorpost was identified, the death plague would then pass and those inside would be spared. The death of the firstborn is the same judgment by God against Jesus when they did the children back in the time of Moses. The blood of the sacrificed lamb spared the lives of those, and notice the significance of those in the house. The blood of the Passover lamb covered them and spared them. Jesus is going to now take this and say, I am the lamb. Luke 22, verse 20. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup is poured out for you in the new covenant in my blood. And a blessing. May you be blessed, Lord our God, King of the world, who creates the fruit of the vine. What is happening here? What's going on? Nothing like this has ever been said during a meal. The meal always again points back to the work of salvation by God for his people out of Egypt. And Jesus is again is taking it and pointing forward. Pointing forward to his death and the redemptive work that will occur when he sheds his blood to redeem sinners. We now move from the blood of the Lamb as a covering to the blood of Jesus. He is the true sacrifice that will rescue and redeem sinners. Through this meal, Jesus explained the meaning of his death and the need for his death. You notice everything prior to this, he was always talking that he was going to have to go to Jerusalem, suffer and be killed. But you didn't ever get the understanding of the meaning of why. And the Passover meal is the full definition as to why he had to suffer. In 12 hours, he was going to die, which is the turning point of a new exodus from sin. One teacher boiled this down for us to understand the Passover meal pointed back. But what the death of Jesus does to point forward and what it accomplished. I love the kind of the two sides. For the Passover meal, as you look back, it says through the lamb, Passover lamb, Yahweh rescues the Israelites from Slavery to Pharaoh. And the new meaning 
that Jesus has now laid down with his life. Through Jesus, Yahweh rescues the world from slavery to sin and death. The meaning is now changed. Jesus died in the place of others. He redeemed us from our sin through his broken body and blood. And I hope you look beyond and behind just communion, but take a look at the Passover meal and see how drastically significant Jesus had changed the symbolism to point to his sacrificial death for us. It's more than just a meal that we read in text of scripture and then we go straight into our communion service. Think back to what all the significance of what God did to rescue his people and yet here Jesus dying on the cross rescues us from sin. The significance explodes on the page. And I have no idea why in the world I've gone for so long. And it's, I kind of thought I had to go dragging my brain all the way back. And it's kind of like I show up at communion and, you know, you bounce around, you do the elements and whatever, and you just go on. And I thought, wait, 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 wait. Stop. Slow down. Look back. What was Jesus doing in the upper room? Having a meal? Yeah, but it was the Passover meal as he turned the symbolism from the past to the future. I don't know why I hadn't seen that that much. I guess you just get into the rhythm of just doing communion and you kind of just think about it, but talk about the celebration we can have for each communion as we remember what he did. Up to this point, 1,500 years, they remembered all that God had done to rescue them from Egypt. Now we've got the beautiful opportunity when we do community to remember all that Jesus did and continues to do in us and through us. That's the remembrance. That's what we have to carry from generation to generation, handing it down to those around. For 1,500 years, they faithfully carried forward the Passover meal and its significance. We too are in that same, where we carry forward the Passover meal and its new definition, what it is for us as we celebrate with communion. And I hope this gives you a lot more illumination into what is behind what Jesus was doing in the upper room. He's got less than 12 hours. He will soon be hanging on a Roman execution rack for us. He points forward, not back. Let's pray. Father, only you could help us to see this with the greatest picture ever set before us as they remembered the past of what you did so faithfully and in the depth of care that you had for them to give them the great saving and salvific exodus from Egypt, from bondage, from slavery, from torture. But yet all that 
culminated on Jesus through torture and through death. He bore our sins that we may still continue to have a relationship with you and be released from the bondage of sin and set free to a relationship with you. Father God, help us to not take lightly what communion really truly represents, that you sent your Son to die for us. A horrific, excruciating, torturous death, but through that suffering, we are set free. God, thank you for your care, way beyond anything we could even imagine. But you do love us and care for us. We praise you. In Jesus. Amen.